we would love to hear from you what the Lord is doing in your life or have seen in others. Write us at stories at themillenniumbeat.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 407-624-9957. We at The Millennium Beat are looking forward to hearing what the Lord is doing in your life. Remember that The Millennium Beat is helping people share their stories. I'm doing today's interview from my temporary studios in Fayetteville, Louisiana. On today's show, I have Rusty and Belinda Owens from Branson, Missouri, where they are senior pastors of the Glory Barn. They have a deep passion for missions to places such as Mexico, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and other places. On today's show, we will be discussing their works in the mission field. Also, we will be discussing dealing with the death of their oldest son in a car accident. So now on to our show. Welcome to the Millennium Beat Podcast, where we like to encourage the world one story at a time. Now get ready to hear stories from around the world that encourage and uplift you. Now to the show with your host, Kevin James. Hey everybody, this is Kevin James and I'm the host of the Millennium Beat. I'm still in Louisiana and I happen to have a guest here with me in the studio, Rusty and Belinda Owens. You guys, thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks Glad for having here. us. Hey, it is awesome. This is going to be a good show. We get to hear a little bit more about you. Maybe I'll leave this show with something I never knew. I hope so. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't know. I, I, the question is, I always go, I like to start with my guests back in the very beginning of their lives. And then we kind of, depending on how exciting their childhood was or not, <laughs> depends on how fast we go. So I don't know. Sure. Let's. Whoever wants to jump in first, tell us a little bit about where you came from. Go for it. Let me go first. Okay. Um, I was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit when I was seven. Um, I grew up in a Greyhound bus. Greyhound bus. My dad was a minister, evangelist. He pastored for a little while. Um, I played the drums. I started playing the drums when I was nine. Wow. And then I had to learn to do the keyboard at 16 because my sister, just older than me, Got married. Uh, you and had to fill so in we the all, <laughs> We all had to move up one. <laughs> so um, I played the keyboard. Um, I was raised under the gospel tent with um, miracles and demons coming out. And, now, what state was this? Um, Texas and Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yep. So my dad was a minister, and uh, he raised us to believe God and that there was nothing God couldn't do. Just ask him for it and go for it. And cool. so there was, there was never any religious strength. When I meet people who have grown up in a religious organization that says, you can't do this, or God doesn't do that anymore, um, I feel sorry for them. I hurt for them because God's alive and he's ready and willing and able to help us if we just ask. So. Okay. Man, that was a nutshell. That was, <laughs> that was an over-abbreviation. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the cliff note of the cliff note. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Uh, funny, because I met her right after I became a Christian, and uh, I became a Christian in August of 1978, and uh, I was uh, saved in a little Baptist church in southern Oklahoma, and uh, I've, uh, a relation of mine said it would be a good idea if we went over to this tent 
<laughs> gospel tent and see what's going on over there. And so we did, and uh, there was about six, seven of us that went, and we just kept going night after night because it was just wild and uh, refreshing and wild at the same time. And, and uh, the little organ player was kind of cute. And anyway... I wonder uh, who that organ yeah. player was. That little yeah. organ player. I don't have uh, a clue. Oh, she could play that <laughs> organ. Now, how old were you at that time? Oh, when I met 78. you. You'd been 17. Yeah. 17 years old. Yeah. And, and you kind of. I was just a freshly saved Baptist boy. And uh, <laughs> anyway, um, my friend uh, that was with me, he uh, he got filled with the Holy Spirit in that meeting, in, in one of those meetings that we were attending. And uh, he was kind of sweet on my wife now. Uh, he was kind of sweet on Belinda <laughs> when she was 17. And, and uh, it didn't work out for him. It he, did not. He, she, she shot him out of the saddle. He kept asking <laughs> me to go out with him. Put an emotional cap in him and <laughs> right. sent him packing. And, it was no. And so, I don't think so. I, it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, it wasn't. I, I kind of went a different direction and uh, ended up going to a Bible school in South or North Texas. And uh, the Lord, you know was moving in my life and, and kind of giving me direction and, and sensing a call of God on my life. And I met Belinda, I guess it would have been in two, uh, 1980. For the second time. A second time. And, uh, and uh, I hadn't really pursued God on this, on the issue of <laughs> dating or anything like that. But uh, I was asking him at that time, I was 20 years old and I was asking him, Lord, you got, is there anybody out there for me? And uh, she came into the business where I was working and I, uh, <laughs> you're going to tell it. Yeah. I asked her, I said, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to, I said, you could buy me dinner. And I was trying to be Tongue in cheek and coy. You said that to her. Yeah, yeah it was did. a mistake. Yeah, because it didn't fly. I and said I didn't, no. You know, I didn't know that her daddy wouldn't put up with that anyway, with her dating somebody. And uh, but uh, anyway, uh, she said no, and she walked out of the business. And two weeks later, she came back in, and I guess uh, you know uh, the attraction. I guess had set in. I guess. And uh, God was working on my behalf, I know. And uh, Well, I got a quick question. Was yeah. Okay, when you seen her the first time, she was playing the keyboard. Yes. Okay, do you recognize her from oh, that time? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I knew who she was. She left and, a lasting impression uh, on you. Yeah, her. yeah, and I knew she was a godly girl, and I, I knew okay. she, she was 19. But the second time I met her, she was it was two years later, and she was 19. And, and uh then when she came back into the store after two weeks of uh, absence, I asked her out proper, and I said, "Look, I'll buy you dinner if uh, if you'd go out with me." And and uh, we hit it off. We hit Did it you? off right off the bat, and it was kind of well, our no. first date was Flag Day, though, and we were engaged by the end of August. Wow, you don't waste any time. <laughs> we were married hey. October the 11th. Now, yeah. my question, I asked him if he remembered you, and because of course now. Did you remember him when, I did. when you walked in this? I did. Yeah. Yes. But when he asked if I would buy his supper, I thought, hey, he has no money. Oh, I'm yeah. not going down that road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nope. This guy is poor. That's right. <laughs> and I'm not meant to marry poor. That's or good. Date, even date in that situation. So, all right, continue with that. <laughs> well. So you uh, got, you were getting married. And yeah, we, uh, few months later we uh 
we were engaged and uh, decided we were going to get married, and, and we had the date set for the following year, but uh, uh, we kept moving it up, and we moved it up about as far as we were going to move it up, and we actually had people ask us if we wanted to move it up even closer, <laughs> and uh, for financial reasons, uh, uh, I won't go into that, but right. uh, we were offered a trip uh, to the Mediterranean to Israel for free okay. if we move it up and she was even afraid to ask her dad about moving it up any farther <laughs> but we had a budget wedding I think uh, the whole thing cost about $30 and that included the dress uh, yeah yeah it was it was just oh, a budget cool. but you know 40 40 years later here we are so it took Buccaneer. you know people spend <laughs> a lot of money on weddings then and turn around and repeat the process three or four times. Well, it didn't happen for us. Now, you're talking about moving it up, and your father wouldn't appreciate that. Well, let me ask you this question. What did your father think of this man over here? Well, Dad's rule was we could date when we were 16. Right. But they had to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay. So he, he had that checkbox. Yeah. Well, I was afraid he wouldn't let me go out with him. So I knew my dad wanted an Norelco razor, one of the new ones. <laughs> And so I went and bought him one and took it home and gave it to him and hugged him and told him how much I loved him. And then I said, oh, Dad, you remember that Baptist boy that's filled with the Holy Ghost? Um, he wants to know if I can go out to dinner. He couldn't tell me no after, <laughs> after I had just lavishly hugged and given him a gift. And, and he, he used to say he traded his daughter for a Norelco razor. Well, it's better than a goat. <laughs> yeah, it better is. than a goat, yeah. But he said, well, I guess so. He sounds like he's a good guy. Yeah. And he didn't know he was losing his organ yeah. player. He didn't know it was for real, did he? Uh, no. All right. So now you, you, you finally got to the marriage. What, what's happening from that point? Well, I was actually already involved in the ministry before we were married. And uh, here's here's my concept on the courtship. Uh, we did it God's way. We really did. Uh, you know, we, we, we minded ourselves, and uh, we knew what we were looking at, a marathon and not a sprint. And we were looking at the long haul, and we were able to function in a in a godly fashion and a lot of people under pressure in modern society i know even then you know i think well that was the 80s think of it now uh hey the 80s wasn't no walk in the park i guarantee you and uh you know growing up in the 60s and 70s and coming into the 80s uh my goodness the 70s was just insane so uh i wanted to do it right and i'd never done anything right in my life but i did that right and, uh, you know, I was in covenant with God, and uh, it was for real for me. And so I thought, well, this has to be for real also. And marriage is hard enough without bringing a lot of baggage into the relationship to begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want God on your side in every step of the way. And if you're going to be in the ministry, uh, there's, there's stresses that can come upon the marital relationship by virtue of the ministry that seems like other people are alleviated that particular part of things. Uh, you know, in other words, nobody's giving you a free pass. If you want a happy marriage and all intents and purposes, you've got to make it a happy marriage. You got to make it a good marriage. You got to do it in the Lord. And, uh, you, it's not only that you have to do it, you know, with his guidance, you got to do it with him. You've got to have the person of God in the relationship for it to be uh, 
a kingdom functioning marriage. So uh, we actually did that. It wasn't easy. Nobody gave us a, a free ride. We had a lot of, you know, uh, personality mm-hmm. issues in the in the relationship early on. And man, I was under such a such a interesting time in the Lord when we did get married. It was, uh, you know, I was fasting. I was seeking God on a whole nother level by then. I was very serious about God, very serious about the call of God on my life. And uh, I was actually bringing her into that. And uh, anyway, uh, to say the least, it wasn't always without its hiccup or without its hitches, but we we were determined that God had put this together. So we, we went through all of that. We had two sons. Uh, one was born in 1982, Cameron, the oldest. And then uh, Nathan, the youngest, was born in 1984. And uh, we, we uh, traveled in those early days. And uh, I worked intermittently in the sense that, you know, I had a job and so on. Uh, but the ministry was our primary. And uh, then... Uh, in 1987, we started past. We took a church in Missouri, and we lived in Southern Oklahoma at the time. But we were asked to, if we wanted to take a church. It was really a really small church, and uh, uh, they had lost their building and they had migrated into a storefront. So we basically took a storefront church, which now they're migrating out of the churches back into the storefronts <laughs> and the strip malls and all of this. It's amazing. But uh, we took a storefront church and. Uh, it grew. God blessed it. It grew. And uh, we pastored that church for seven years and and uh, right on into our early 30s. And uh, let me ask you a little about that church. Um, I don't know exactly if you said it or not. Was it a non-denomination? It was. Okay. It was. Yeah. Right, yeah. But yeah. we had, uh, of course, obviously, we had full gospel uh, influences. Without a doubt, we believed in the infilling of the Holy Spirit and we believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we believe in the modern interpretation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, whereas a lot of churches say, well, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they don't really believe in any modern interpretation of said gifts. So they, in essence, you don't believe that the mm-hmm. gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. So just own it and just say, I'm a secessionist and just own it. But the idea <laughs> is that we did believe in them, and uh, God blessed us. We had, uh, we had a lot of influences from some great people, great ministers over the years. And uh, great spiritual tutors and fathers that had floated in and out of our lives over the years. So, and plus, her dad was a big influence until he passed in 1994. And uh, he was a man of God, and he was a great prophet of the Lord. And he had nothing but four daughters. That was strange. And, hmm. and then he had four son-in-laws, and I don't think he liked any of us. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, none of us were ever good enough. And we were always stealing something from him when we took his daughters from him. It was right. like, you know, well, <laughs> you know. I gave you my daughter, man, you, you owe me big time. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, we, my dad, my person, my, my, my dad, my father, uh, he was a great man. He was just an awesome dad. And, uh, I grew up in a rustic environment in Southern Oklahoma on a farm. And, uh, but dad was just an awesome dad. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I have absolutely no, no childhood horror stories to tell you except for, you know, all the whippings that I got and the lessons <laughs> that I got, you know, and I only got about half of what I deserved so over the years. So it wasn't like I had uh, issues about that. It was 
But uh, when I did become a Christian in 1978, and uh, it was my freshman year in college, and uh, then I subsequently met Belinda uh, right after that, and then we didn't see each other for two years, and then she came back into my life. But it was a gift of God to me, and I still own that, and I still honor it as that. And it's more better now, 40 years down the line, it's better than it ever was. Uh, we pastored on two different occasions in southwest Missouri, and uh, the Lord began to deal with us about when we hit our 40s, he began to deal with us about uh, other things, such right. as uh, missions. And mm -hmm. we got really involved in missions while we were pastoring, but I would go to the mission field and I'd just light up like a Christmas tree. And, and even gifting seemed to go to another level and really spike. There was a spike on the giftings when we go to the mission field. And so I thought, God, I, I really. Can I add something in yeah. there? Um, we were talking about fathers. Mm -hmm. Well, when we started going to Nicaragua, we went, I don't even know how many times we've been there, but I was up in the mountains leading a group. And um, I came to a little village and there was a, an older lady, an elderly lady came up to me and she said, uh, through the translator, my granddaughter has been burnt really bad. And I'm standing there, and you talk about a godly father when he's in the cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on. And I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, what do I do? You know, I'm going to pray over and send the word. All of a sudden, I see my dad. He comes up in a little bubble like when you do a cartoon. Right. And he's in there in his head, and he looks at me, and he says, Belinda Kay, you know what to do. You pray over that lanyard around your neck and you give it to her and tell her to go put it next as close as she can to her granddaughter. And so I followed through on that. And they are there cheering us on. I know it's a different topic, but speaking of godly fathers, he would always say, you know, God can do anything. Just right. asking. And uh, one other time he popped up. We were, I was in the mountains again in Nicaragua and a friend David was with me. And Rusty was running in a different team in another location. And um, we had our service. And when it was over, they brought a little girl to me. And they told me that she was deaf and dumb. She could not hear. She could not speak. He never had. And so I go to pray for her. And I lay my hands on her and do my pretty little, Lord, please heal her. God, let her, let her hear. Jesus, I know you can. I stop. Nothing. Nothing happened. And all of a sudden, there comes that cloud of witness bubble again. And dad's in it. And he says, Belinda, you know how to do this. You take authority over that deaf and dumb spirit. Put your fingers in her ears and command it to come out. So I put my fingers in the little girl's ears. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And as I pulled my fingers out, then I told her, I said, stick your tongue out. And I showed her what I was doing. She stuck her tongue out at me. And I put my finger on her tongue. And I said, I command the mute spirit to loose her in the name of Jesus. And then I clicked my fingers, snapped my fingers at her ears where she couldn't see me. And she would turn and look. And then I put her hand on my throat and I said, Mama. And she goes, wah, wah, wah. And she was thrilled to death because she could hear a noise she'd never heard before. Mm. You know, she was making a noise and she was hearing a noise. And I thought, oh, God, this is great. And about that time, a storm came in and it was Big old raindrops, like in the tropics, blowing sideways. I was soaked from head to toe. So was everybody else that was there with us. And uh, I'm standing there, and they run and grab another person, a woman, and put her in front of me. And they told me that that's her mom. 
and she can't hear or, or speak either. And they, she looked at her daughter and she was just crying with joy. And I turned around and I said, you want me to pray for you? And she's, I motioned to her, you know, because she couldn't hear her speak. And she shook, shook her head. And I just done the same thing again. I did what I was told right. by my father in the cloud of witnesses. Stuck my fingers in her ear, done the same thing. And hers just came yeah. really fast. And so, you know, God, when, you're, when your loved one's gone, steps over, they're not gone, gone. They're there rooting us on. Right. And they're they're there for the Lord to use to tell them, Belinda Kay, you know how to do this. You stick your fingers in her ears. I ended up sticking my fingers in a whole lot of people's ears in Nicaragua, <laughs> and God would heal them. Amen. It that's was crazy. all God. It yeah. wasn't me. Uh, that's a hard testimony to follow. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. She didn't get off topic either. But, uh, you know, uh, our oldest son had just graduated from college in the uh, this January or December of, of uh, 2004. And he had made the decision that he was going to go with us to uh, the mission field. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, man, that'd be awesome, Cameron. And uh, we were scheduled to be in Nicaragua in April of uh, 2005 and uh, take a team in. And uh, we were working in an area in Nicaragua at that time called uh, Boaco. It's up in the mountains uh, toward Maragapa and toward Huigapa. And uh, uh, a few weeks before we were to leave, Cameron, we not a few weeks. I mean, this is like a, a month and a half uh, before we were to leave. I said, you know, we got to expedite Cameron a, a passport. So he went with... Uh, uh, a girlfriend of his, uh, not like he had many. He, this girl was a girl, and she was his friend, but she was also somebody he really, really, really cared about. And she was going with him to go get passport photos, and they got in a car wreck. And uh, this was March 3rd, 2005. And uh, Cameron went home to be with the Lord right then and there, and it it destroyed her leg. She she had multiple surgeries getting her put back together. And uh, I don't think it was April. It was May uh, when we finally did go to Nicaragua. And we were just devastated as a family, as a church family. As uh, You know, my oldest son, uh, he was he was just a... Uh, very sensitive young man and uh, when we lost him it just took the wind out of our sails and i asked belinda it's about april i said look do you even want to go to nicaragua do you want to even do this and uh you know and her attitude was you know well i don't want to just sit around here right and uh so we went and uh uh we had our son's funeral you know, about four days after his accident, and then we prepped and went to Nicaragua. We took, uh, I think, uh, there was like nine young people went with us in Cameron's stead and honoring Cameron, and it was just life-transforming for them and for us, and it was a, the most emotional-ridden missions function that we've ever done in our lives. We subsequently moved uh down to doing ministry in Tamaulipas, Mexico, right after this. And we moved in 
late summer, around July of that same year. And we were there for six years. Yeah. I was just going to insert something here. Yeah. Um, we didn't want to just sit around and be a victim. Yeah. And um, when we would go into to Nicaragua and minister, um, and even on that trip I just mentioned where the deaf girl was hearing, and uh, would stand up, I would stand up, and I did it over and over and over, and I would stand up and tell them, my son Cameron was getting ready to come see you. I had told him how beautiful the children were, and he loved kids. And I said, he was getting ready to come, but he was in a car wreck, and he's now in heaven. And the only way that you're going to ever get to meet him is if you receive Jesus in your life and you go to heaven. And I'd have, there'd be hundreds of kids and no, not even that. That's not being liberal with the numbers. Yes. At least hundreds yes. and thousands of kids. And I'd stand up and it'd rip my heart out every time, every time I'd tell it. But I said, Satan took mine. He's going to pay for this. Every time I'd stand up and tell him Cam's story and then give a salvation call, there would be hundreds of hundreds. kids. And they'd stand there as I'm telling the story with tears rolling down their faces. And I said, Satan, I'm going to stick it to you. You did this to me. You're going to pay for it. I'm not yeah. going to take it lying down. It's war. And we did that over and over and over. And I remember the day that I prayed for the little deaf girl, I was emotionally drained. I'd shared it three times that day. And I sat down on the bus and I looked at our friend David. He's in heaven now. And I said, it just rips my heart out every time I share it. But I see such a harvest when I use what Satan did to me to bring mothers into the kingdom. It works. It works. So if I can suck it up long enough to get it out, I know I'm going to reap a bunch of his kids and he's not going to get to take them with him. Right. And so that's that's what I urge people to do. Don't be a victim. Take Goliath's sword and chop his own head off with it. Pick it up, turn it. You know, say if you've been abused, God loves you, and just use your story of abuse and what God has done to bring other people into a place of healing. And then just, I mean, you're sticking it to the devil over and over Over and over. And And, um, I mean, it still makes me want to fight when I when I think about it all. Um, It rises up inside of me like you've done this, you're going to pay. Yep. So. I just wanted to add that in there. Uh, you want to stick it to him every time he hurts your family. That's right. And uh, I'm going to make you pay for that. Yeah, you're going to regret you messed with me. Mm. And uh, Turning your loss into a victory. Absolutely. Yeah, turning a victim into a victor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, absolutely. And it's a great philosophy. You know, we think that David killed Goliath with a stone. And actually, technically, he incapacitated Goliath with that stone and then took Goliath's (laughs) own sword that Goliath had been Mm. threatening him with just two minutes before. And he took Goliath's own sword from him and chopped his head off with his own sword. And a lot of times what injury Satan has threatened against you becomes part of your testimony that you use back against him and against, yeah, maybe I was an addict but i am not an addict now and this <laughs> is how you get I out was, of it <laughs> but i am not now yeah and the sword is in my hand now buddy and uh so 
it it's turning it's literally turning the tables but it's turning what was used against you on the hills and using it against the enemy and using it as a tool to reach into other people's lives that have gone through similar things and even right. to this very day uh, we still are allowed to do that and uh that's the good thing it's you know something that happened years ago that the devil was attacking you and your family mm -hmm. your beliefs um, you turned it around and says, no, this is not going to be the way I'm going to fight it. Amen. Mm -hmm. I share it, even though, even to this day, there's, we're emotional <laughs> about it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, but God gets the glory and salvation comes from the testimony. Right. right. Yes. And, and, and you can't beat that. You can't. No. And God does though. He has a way to even up the ante here. I've had even in recent times and in the, especially in the past few years, it's, you know, had opportunity to actually see my son in the heavenly realm. Mm. And, uh, and it's just, a it's a marvelous feature that God will allow. Most people don't utilize anything like that because they don't have a belief system that allows that. Mm -hmm. But the Bible says that you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Who did you think that cloud of witnesses were? Mm -hmm. Who do you really think that is? And you say, well, it's the angelic host. No, you're not a very good theologian because that's not who he's talking <laughs> about. He's talking about those that have gone on before you. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's talking about people that are in heaven that are your biggest intercessors right now are people that have gone on before you. And if you have a deposit in heaven, some of us, I'm 60 years old now, so I'm getting to a place in my life where I may actually have more on that side than I do on, on this side. side. Have so many family members that have gone on to be with the Lord. And, uh, you know, there is going to be a glad reunion day. We used to sing songs like that. Well, we, I have one coming, but, I have intercessors on that side of the veil. Right. And, you know, we look solely at in the context that, oh, if I just had a few prayer warriors in the church, well, man, you've got prayer warriors in heaven. What do you think they're doing? They're on vacation. I think it's a, those of you who think that heaven is a retirement home, <laughs> you're stunned in your spiritual growth. If you think you're going to retire to heaven, you're not even going to be an old person when you hit that ground. <laughs> Amen. You're going to be transformed. You're going to be transformed. You're not going to be given an old body. My goodness. If I'm 80 years old, when I die, I don't want that 80 year old body with me. <laughs> Glory to God. None of you believe that you don't believe you're going to be 80 when you're still in heaven. You're going to have something that's vital. You got vitality. You're going to have right. renewed, restored youth. And it, you're not going to say, well, show me my rocking chair for the next billion years. And that's, that's, that's Boring. insane uh, mentality. I heard somebody to... once say that you're going to be like 30 years old. And I look back at my 30-year-old pictures and I go, okay, I'm yeah. good with that. I've yeah. seen my dad. I've seen my son. I've seen um, Rusty's aunt. And they're all, they all have no more gray hair. They look like they're in their 30s. Yeah, that's... Yep. And yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is I'll really cool. I'll be happy cool. if that way, you know. I look back on yeah. my 30 year old pictures. Yeah. And I say, okay. I can live with that. I can you live with that. that. <laughs> you know, especially when someone looks back at your pictures and says, hmm, you were pretty handsome back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that what back. I'm going to be in heaven. Yeah, that's huh? right. I that's get right. That. <laughs> I take it. I'm Amen. waiting for that day. I oh, get yeah. It back. All right. So. Uh, it sounds like, as I said, I, I remember your story now a little bit more that you said it. I go, oh, yeah, I remember hearing it because you spoke at Identity Church a few times. <laughs> but 
Um, you, you definitely are uh, mission driven. We are. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you've okay. been, you mentioned a few places you've been, um, and maybe even some of the great stories, because that's what we're here for. Yeah, okay. Well, oh, yeah, great stories. Well, we're still uh, we're pastors right okay. now in Branson, Missouri. Uh, there at we call it affectionately the Glory Barn, but it's actually Crossroads International. But nobody calls it Crossroads International, and even the <laughs> sign out front doesn't say Crossroads International. It just says Glory Barn. And when you see the barn and you see the glory, then you know you're there. That was right. But uh, anyway, uh, we uh, we are still knee-deep in northern Mexico in Tamaulipas, and we have ongoing ministry. We have a ministry compound there uh, called Senda de Vida, and uh, we've partnered with the director of Senda de Vida for 12 plus years uh, we've helped build the refugee camp we've helped build uh, other ministries and churches throughout northern Tamaulipas we have uh, pastoral connections across northern Mexico but uh, we uh, we have a new outreach going on uh, down in Oaxaca Mexico which is to me it's it's very much like working back in Central America. We worked uh, for years in uh, Nicaragua and uh, Panama, Costa Rica, and uh, we've, we've done a little bit uh, in El Salvador. But uh, right now, our focus is still in Northern Mexico. We still have a tremendous heart for missions, and particularly Latin America, as you mm -hmm. can tell. Uh, but... Uh, Missions, uh, to me, is a, is a mandate. Right. Okay. It's it's not like oh, I really enjoy doing this. It's like I'm way past the point that I care whether I enjoy doing it. I'm going to do it because I'm supposed to do it, mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, but I do enjoy doing it, <laughs> which is a bonus. That's just the bonus. But uh, people that don't feel the concept that they've actually been sent to do something will be very short-lived in what they're doing because it's kind of a honeymoon effect. After a while, the euphoric aspect will leave, and then you're just left with, I'll just go home. Well, people that don't truly have a minister's heart or don't truly have a concept that they've been sent to do something or never have a longevity aspect to what they do, and everything they do is very short-lived. Well, we're long-term. And uh, we've been involved in missions in Mexico since 2005. And uh, we've been involved in Central America since 2004. But uh, Mexico was our, our main base of operation for a long time and still is to a degree. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are other aspects of what we do now. We're looking, in the early days, we were going to Native America, and uh, we would go to uh, Lakota Reservations up mm -hmm. north, Pine Ridge Reservation, Rosebud Reservation, Cheyenne River Reservation up in South Dakota and northern South Dakota on the border of North Dakota. And uh, we worked the Navajo Reservation out in Chinle Valley out in Arizona along with the border of the Hopi Reservation. Uh, we grew up in Oklahoma, so a lot of times you would be in an urban reservation and wouldn't even know you'd be <laughs> in a reservation. There is no such thing per se as, oh, well, this is reservation land, but there are lands that are owned by Native American tribe, tribal lands throughout Oklahoma, and you would be on them, you wouldn't even know it. I probably, 
a great portion of Tulsa County once was Native American uh, lands that have either still in possession of Native American lands or, or even sold. But uh, the, the idea is that we have a strong connection in America with the First Nations people. That's, that's kind of a politically correct term saying, well, I'm dealing with the Native Americans. Mm. And, uh, but uh, our heart is to reach them. Our heart is to bring healing to great wounds, ancient wounds that have been placed upon this people. We, uh, we have a heart to, uh, I, it's like a, a mandate in a, in a way, but uh, we have a sense that we are to play a role in help bringing healing. Uh, you say, well, how are you going to do that? I, I, I'll tell you, you write me a story, a book on how to do it, and I'll just follow your rules. I'm just flying by the seat of my pants, but I know that I've heard from heaven on this matter that we're to address this. And uh, there's a great wounding called the Trail of Tears that has happened upon this nation. And we drove people off of their own lands, their native lands. And uh, we made treaties with these people and then turned around and broke those treaties. We made agreements that we turned around and lied. As a government, as a people, we've turned around and we lied. And so you think, well, if there was any animosity and any true reparations that could be made in this nation, I would direct it towards the Native American people and not be so sympathetic towards a lot of other groups that are wanting some kind of reparations right now. Uh, I, I, my heart goes out to uh, Native America. I think that uh, God has a great, re not just a redemptive plan for the Native American cultures in America, but God is going to use Native America to bring healing to our nation as a whole mm -hmm. as we try to bridge and bring healing to Native America. In return, it's going to be to the benefit of our whole nation. And so uh, uh, anyway, that's the way my take is right now. Uh, I had a woman from South Africa pray for me last year in a meeting. I went out on the floor, and uh, when I did, I was gone. I mean, I was gone. And I was caught up in a trance in the spirit of the Lord, and I got an aerial view of the United States. And it wasn't a map of the United States. It was a topical view of the United States. You could see mountain ranges. You could see lowlands. You could see rivers. And I saw something that was running from look like what looked like to me the Carolinas and Georgia area across the Appalachians and across uh, the Tennessee Valley and over into Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And uh, it's just a great gash upon the land. And I thought, you know, what is it? It looked like an earthquake had happened. It looked like there was a trench running from the Carolinas to Oklahoma. And I'm asking the Lord, well, what, what is this, you know? And uh, the response that I got, that I was looking at, the residual effect of the trail of tears upon the nation and that there's still a great wound upon the nation because of actions that took place before we were born. And I'm not a great reparations guy. I'm not a great, uh, you know, uh, I don't have pet projects. I don't have, but so I thought this was strange. I'm thinking, well, why are you even showing me this? It's not like I can do anything about it. And I saw fires begin to break out, break out on both sides of this trench across the nation. 
And I'm asking, well, what is this that I'm seeing? And the response that I'm getting is, is that these are churches and communities, gatherings of believers, small gatherings, some larger, some smaller, little fellowships all along this gash, and that the Lord is literally going to run sutures through these holes, these fires, and he's going to bring a healing to this open wound because it's still an open wound. It's not a scar. It's not a it's not a scar on the land it's literally still an open wound and he's going to bring healing to this gap and i'm thinking okay we're on one side of that what do i do and so we've initiated a few small things we're getting ready to kick into a little bit bigger push on some of this uh, especially as it pertains to intercession for the native american people and you say well uh, you know, you got to care about all people. I, I do care. It isn't like I'm choosing this. It isn't like I asked for this. It's because God's put something before our eyes that we're supposed to address. And it isn't saying that one people group is more valuable than another people group. It's just that I'm not asked to deal with every issue in Africa. Right now, I'm asked to deal with this here in my own backyard. And so uh, we're, we're sowing into this. I don't know how to go about it. I don't have networking or connections. And I don't know that a lot of people that have been a part of Native American ministries are actually healers. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Some people tend to exasperate a situation to perpetuate the cultural's need for them. In other words, you got a pastor that constantly preaches a disastrous message to his congregation to perpetuate the congregation's need for him. And uh, instead of preaching himself out of a job, he's constantly preaching himself job security. And there's no healing in that. There's no, no end game to it. It's just a perpetual need. And you hear this in, in victim-mongering organizations that want to demonize one group as the problem to the other group's pro situations in life. And as long as you're going to demonize one culture or another, all you're doing is perpetuating your culture's need for your voice. And instead of you're not bringing healing to the situation, then in my opinion, you need to shut up and step aside. I'm not going to use you. I'm not going to partner with you. I'm not going to partner with that. What I will partner with is something that I see God kissing and the spirit of the Lord on it. And there's a healing aspect to what's being presented. And I'll partner with that five ways from Sunday. That's how we work in Mexico. That's how we worked in Nicaragua. We were a coalition that ended up creating a networking of pastors and leaders. When we were working uh, the Lakota Reservation, um, and we would go up, we didn't. We found that it was easier to not deal with the churches because they were so, um, I guess you could say, racist. Um, they would. Their history was they would cut the natives' hair, the boys, cut their hair off, and the girls would have to wear dresses. They would bring out a piano, and this is how we worship God. Well, they had no clue about pianos, and they could probably cared less. So when we were going up, we would meet with the chief of the area, and he would give us permission to be in the council building. We would set up uh, drums. And uh, he'd have his guitar, and, and a cousin of mine would have his flute. He's Creek Indian. And uh, they would start playing worship music 
with instruments that the natives were familiar with. Amen. And That's they're true. looking at us thinking, you're worshiping God. How is that? You know, you're bringing what we already know and showing us how we can work. And they'd stand there in tears. Literally just run down, down a descendant yeah. of American horse. He was a chief and he would stand there and just tears roll down his face as we would just sing about God to the drums and the flute and the guitar because it was what they could relate to. And you can take this and worship God with it, you know. And um, it was just showing them that, no, you don't have to play the piano. And no, we don't have to cut your hair and put you in a dress. You know, you can be native and love God. And um, it was just like something they hadn't seen before. Um, and I'd like to do more of that. Yeah. Show, yeah, them, <laughs> show them a God that they can worship. Amen. You know? Be yourself. So, so basically you have your church that you're still doing. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And then you have your mission. So we do. Mm-hmm. And then you also do things like, you know, this conference that we're at right now right. and you're speaking around the country. Right. So it's cool. Tell us a little bit about, um, your involvement, not more your involvement, but your experiences in the sense of meeting with, with Jack Taylor. Wow. Uh, how Jack that all was came a gift about. of God into my life. I'll say that. Jack is a gift of God to the body of Christ. Uh, even at his elevated age, uh, Jack is, is, is just an amazing, amazing uh, father figure. And what's amazing is about Jack is that he, he allowed uh, 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 a father-son paradigm to develop around him. Uh, even when some of us had, a, I had a very keen father figure in my life through my own father, mm-hmm. through my dad, uh, who was a great, just a great soul. And he ultimately became a great heart for God, my dad did. And uh, and I honor him in every way. Jack Taylor came into my life uh, after my father had passed away. And uh, I saw uh, something special in Jack and and. The coalition of believers that you see, a lot of these guys were round pegs that could not fit in square holes. Mm-hmm. And uh, is we were we were literally, if we were a comic, uh, we would be the island of misfit toys. <laughs> we were we were just a, a ragtag group of, of believers that didn't fit a lot of modern church paradigm, but fit keenly into the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God doesn't always have proper identity in the church world so the church world functioned under one paradigm the kingdom of god's another paradigm and uh i'm not going to go into some long elongated discussion uh, about that but uh here comes jack taylor and he is one of those kingdom fathers and he allowed my wife and I to come in as sons. And I, don't, I still struggle with some of this because she is not a son. She is a daughter. And uh, <laughs> she's my wife. I don't <laughs> matter as long as yeah. I can sit at the table. Yeah, and it, it had to be a package deal with me. Well, it, isn't it like when you're married, though? You say you is. become one. Absolutely. Yes. So she is and what you are and you are what she is. She's had my back when nobody else has had my back. And and vice versa, and when I had no other visible prayer warriors around me, I had her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's been with me long before churches were involved in my life, and she'd be, she'll be with me long after churches are no longer involved in my life. And uh, 
it is a package deal. I mean, my goodness, I can't even hardly drive down the street without her telling me where I'm supposed to go. So yeah, that's, it's bad. When I get in the car by myself, I'm thinking, am I supposed to turn this on? I don't even know what to do anymore. It takes both of us to just function in the ministry. <laughs> I heard you were looking for your backpack while ago. Yeah, <laughs> and the funny thing was, it was on the back of his chair. It was on the back of his chair. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> it was like, I'm looking all over. And like, then I walked where right, is it? right back where Just I was Just saying sitting. you need me. What hey. can I say? But you know, true. it's funny how God does that. It takes a couple of men and women that come together and become one. Right. It's like you have strengths that you don't have. That's right. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it's a puzzle. It's because if I'm looking at my fingers and if I hit, if I hit them at the, it's like, exactly. it's not working, but if they're open and you get at the right position, yeah. now they become, Amen. you know, together. Amen. And I think this is what God does. He and, does that. And it's great to see someone who's been married for many years Yep. and I've gone through trials, tribulation, disasters, you know, death Lost. in the family and come through it i'm gonna say something that's totally in modern context is politically incorrect in the church to say but my son was getting married a few years back and and somebody kind of pulled him aside and was telling him you know how to make this thing happen and what he ought to have once when he marries this woman and and when it was all said and done finally you know later that evening i I pulled him aside and i said look nate i said uh, if you're going to take advice from somebody about marriage, take advice from somebody who's been married long and not often. Right. And because uh, <laughs> the person who was giving him advice had been married four times. Uh, and uh, it's like, you know, you need to yeah. probably take advice from somebody who's actually had a long, successful marriage in this right. matter. Yeah, so I'm throwing that out there yeah. kind of. And people say, oh, you can't say that. Well, oh. I just did, so get over yourself. I have a, I have a story about Papa Jack. Um, and Papa Jack and Mama Frida have been very dear to my heart. And um, we've kind of grown pretty close. Um, the first time that we were with him at Charlie's church, the guys were in the Charlie's office. And I've always been one that, you know, I would rather be sitting at the table hearing them talk about what God's been doing than to be in the kitchen fixing the food. <laughs> and I, a lot of times I'll look around and think, oh my gosh, I'm the only woman in here. And uh, so it, it it kind of, it was welcomed at that point. Anyway, we're in the office at Charlie's and I was thinking, you know, what what would I want to ask him? I, had, I didn't know him at that point. What do I want to ask this man of God? I knew he is the spiritual father to Heidi Baker, spiritual father to... Bill Johnson, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this, this man has outstanding children, you know, they've been setting the world on fire, and I'm thinking, God, what do I want to, I want to ask him a question, so all the men are sitting around the table, and Papa Jack was sitting in the chair, and I leaned over, I, this is how uncomfortable I felt, I leaned over to Rusty, and I go, ask him what's the most supernatural experience that stands out to him that he's ever had. I'm thinking dead people getting up, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And he doesn't know us at this point. And so Rusty goes, she wants to know what the most supernatural experience that God's given you, you know, that touched your heart. What was it? And Papa looked over the desk and he sat there for a minute and he goes, well, let me tell you. One time I was in, I was working the desk at my dad's business. 
It was a hotel in Fort Worth. And he said there was a man came in and he said he was checking in and said he looked at me and he just went, you could tell something hit him in the face. And the man goes, oh my gosh, you look like our son that we just lost. And he says, do you mind if I go get my wife and let her come in here and see you? And Jack said, bring her on in. And he came around and he hugged her and spent some time with that family. To them, it was a comfort to see this young man at that time that looked identical to their son they had lost. And so the man says, would you come by our business and let our helpers see you, our employees? And Jack said, he said, yes, I will. So he went to their business and walked in and the employees went, oh my gosh, you look just like whatever the kid's name was that, got, that was killed. You look just like him. And they were just, just at awe that this man looked just like the son that had been taken. And Jack was very compassionate to them. He hugged them. He shared love with them. And it just causes, being a mother that has lost somebody, it brings a comfort to your heart. I've been in the airport before and have seen someone who looks identical to my son and had to run in the bathroom to just catch myself from not falling on the floor crying. But that was his most supernatural experience. He shared with us having no clue that we had lost our son. Right. So, you know, that's a, that's a godly, fatherly thing that he could look at our hearts and that's the experience he chose to share with us. Now he knows, he knows the story. And uh, I've spent time sitting in the back seat of the car and resting Jack would get out and I'd be back there and me and Mama Frida, because she's lost a son before, sitting back there just crying and hold each other. And I remember Papa Jack stuck his head in the door and he looked back at me. Me and Mama Frida were sitting there crying and he said, thank you for loving my wife. I said, she's very lovable. <laughs> but we had that connection and it was so odd that out of all the supernatural things he's heard and experienced, out of all these big people of God that have all these wonderful ministries, he chose to just come off with that one. And I'm thinking, you know, that's God. When he sits there and tells me that, because it just fills up something in the heart of a parent who has lost a child. And you see someone who looks and talks and acts just like your kid. You just want to run up and hug them. And he experienced that. That was my first big experience with Papa Jack. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's um, close it up because we could probably talk forever here. We and, could. Yeah. <laughs> service will start at 6.30 and we'll get down at 6.29, you know. But either one of you, I'm thinking, Rusty, uh, for this because we'll give your wife a little time to get together. Talk to somebody right now that might be listening that has gone through that same situation. And as a father who's lost his son, his first son, um, whether it's in a prayer or 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 saying something, let's talk to them a little bit, um, something that you would encourage them with. Well, well, we've covered, we covered a lot, a lot of that it, area. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but and, just in uh, recap maybe. Yeah. Uh, we were in a conference just a few months back, and we met a couple who was really fresh, and 
their son had passed like four months before. And of course, Blenda and I are 14 now. Now we're going 15 years into our position. And I could just, my heart just went out to them because all their wounds are just fresh. I mean, they're fresh. And I'm thinking, man, I remember when I was there. Yeah. I would never want to go back to that. I wouldn't trade where I'm at now for being where they're at in the wound. And I'd never assume that my pain, even as severe as it was at that time, is comparable to their pain because there's always different circumstances associated with the passing of a child, which you you were never meant to outlive your children. And uh, so... The circumstances aren't always the same, so I don't believe in just one size fits all. Right. And even though I have empathy, my empathy sometimes may be short because there may be violent circumstances and the reasons of the passing of the child. There may be long-term suffering associated with it that I didn't have. And so having said that, uh, I will say this. God healed us through a series of divine interventions and a whole lot of people that had surrounded us and loved on us. And it really took the wind out of us and knocked us to our knees, but we had people that circled us in prayer and love and compassion, family members and church people alike surrounded us, and we had a support group that a lot of people don't have in their lives right now. Uh, I encourage you not to crawl back into some kind of cave or hole because it'll take you, you can come out of it in a year, but it'll take you emotionally six years before you actually get out of that. And it's just a grave. And uh, the Lord did some divine interventions. I'll say this. Uh, I know you're wanting to wind this down. No, but the first Christmas we had without Cameron was the hardest Christmas mm -hmm. of our lives. And my wife just was spiraling downward and she finally said to me she said i've got to go home you got to take me home and i got to see nathan our youngest son and uh i said i can't honey we're we're obligated here we're we're under responsibilities here in mexico and we we can't just drop and leave right now i said i'll tell you what i'll do i said we'll go to a place here in, in on the border of texas and and I'll take you to a church service, and we'll just get in the presence of the Lord. And that was like putting a Band-Aid on a cancer. It was like, you're not going, you're not hearing me. And I said, yeah, I am. I just don't know what to do. Right, I can't. I'm under obligation. I can't go. And so I took her to a church service, a church called Spirit of Praise in the border of Mexico. And we were on the Texas side of Mexico preparing for the Christmas season. This is like oh, two weeks. Christmas is two weeks out. And... Uh, they had special services, and they had a speaker come in. I can't tell you his name. Never seen him before. Never seen him since. Didn't know the church. Didn't know a single person in this church. We went in only on the solely basis the name was called Spirit of Praise. I walk in. We just sat at the very back. It, they would seat probably six, seven hundred, but they probably had eighty-five people in the congregation because it is Christmas time and right. nobody's wanting to come to special service. The guest speaker got up, and uh, he did, the, the praise team did a great praise, to her, but it lasted 30 minutes, and they were out. It's like, mm -hmm. good grief, you guys just got started. We came here to hear you guys, you know. Right. And then the speaker got up, and he started speaking. And he, he was eloquent, but, he, you know, he was preaching on adultery. 
wasn't really an issue I was dealing with. And so I thought, you know, do you do realize this is Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) Christmas, you're talking about adultery. Anyway, when he got done, he picked up a guitar and just started walking around. And he played like James Taylor. Just, I mean, he was very good. Uh And uh, he'd walk around and he'd just start prophesying over people. He'd walk up and he'd prophesy over somebody and he would just start reading their mail. And, and, uh, and anyway, uh, when he got done, you know, he did about six people and then he had a general prayer and then he said, we're going to close. And Belinda and I are sitting at the very back of the church, kind of off and away from the congregation by ourselves because we didn't know if we wanted to make a quick exit. <laughs> when we first came in, we didn't know the church, didn't know nobody. Right. And so he said, would y'all stand? And we stand and we're waiting for him to start praying. And the next thing I know, he had walked all the way down the aisle, all the way to the back of the church and standing in front of Belinda. And he says, daughter, the Lord wants you to know things aren't as bad as they seem. This day, I release you from regret. And this day, I release you from death. Things aren't as bad as they seem. He's okay. He's with me now. <laughs> I looked at Blenna. She's just this big puddle of goo on the floor. I can imagine. She is just wiped out. And I just fell back into the pew. I just couldn't believe God sent us a postcard at Christmas time from heaven. And uh, they dismissed. We're just, when it was over, we're just pulling ourselves together. Just a prophetic word is like a giant had knocked me and her to the ground. And a rock comes flying out of left field and hits that (laughs) giant right in the head and just TKOs him. (laughs) And he's standing over us like depression, oppression, regret, death is threatening our lives, pushing us into a cloud of depression. And God sends a word of the Lord, and it just caused Belinda. The next day, she was totally 180-degree turn. And... uh, that God cared enough for her that he sent her. So we had several of those divine interventions from heaven. I can tell you a series of them. I won't. (laughs) I can tell you, though, that if you're out there and you hear this podcast, uh, that you're not alone in this. And I know your pain, you feel like God didn't care enough for you or he would have protected you from this. I I can empathize with that, but at the same time, I can tell you that God loves you more than you'll ever know. He's not going to let you sink. You think he done let you down, and you're mad at God. I understand that. You are mad at God because he allowed this to transpire in your life. Something You were put in a club of people that outlived their children, a club you never signed up to be in. And your pain is real. He knows you're angry. He knows you're hurt. He knows you're mad at him. And you've used choice words in describing his behavior towards you. But you're wrong. It wasn't his doing. Some things happen that he didn't initiate. It's not even his plan. But they do happen. And I just want to encourage you that he's going to reach out to you five ways 
because he does not want to see you totally consumed by the loss of a child. And uh, I, I, I know that if you had two children or if you had 20 children, the pain is the same. If you had 11 children, you lost one. The pain is exactly the same as if you only had one child. And you say, no, it's not. I assure you, if it's a mother, yes, it is. And I just want you to know that God does. He's going to reach out to you if you're allowing. He'll breathe by the power of his Holy Spirit. He'll breathe health and healing into your life. And I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to have my wife pray with you. We're going to just do it jointly. I'm going to pray one part of this prayer and let my wife pray the other part of this prayer. And if you're out there and you're fighting depression because of you lost your mama, you lost a daddy, you lost a sister that was so close to you, and there's no replacement for her, and I understand that. I really do. Nobody's going to replace her, but you do have God, and he can bring healing and even into that. And I'm going to say, Father, in the name of Jesus, you've got a child out there that you care about, a daughter. You have a son that's just overwhelmed because his dad is no longer in the picture. you got a daughter that's lost her sister. She's overwhelmed, and she just don't even know how to cope. I'm asking you to breathe healing into that. I'm asking you to do a divine intervention for them. I'm asking you to bring comfort that only comes from heaven. And I'm asking it in the name of Jesus. Father God, I ask that you you just soothe their heart, Father. That you would just pour oil and wine in there and God just heal it up in the name of Jesus. Father God, let them see supernatural things. Father, show them their loved one in the heavens. Let them have an experience, Father. God, that brings comfort and peace to your heart and your mind. Father God, I ask that you do for them what you've done for me. I ask God that you, you... Stand up and be alive. Show them, Father, that our loved ones are in a cloud of witness. That's right. God, that that we aren't apart forever and that there will be a reunion, God. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you guys for listening. This is the Millennium Beat with your host, Kevin James. I'd like to thank my guest very much. Thank you for being here. God bless you, Kevin. God bless. All right, guys, we'll catch you guys next week. Same time, same channel. Thanks for tuning in today to the Millennium Beat Podcast. I hope you heard something that was encouraging to you. We'd like to hear from you with your stories. So write us at stories at themillenniumbeat.com or give us a call at 407-624-9957 and leave us a voicemail. You may also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a YouTube channel. Please like us and share us with your friends. You may also go to our website at themillenniumbeat.com and you'll find our podcast and our YouTube video. You also may find a calendar there with past and future guests and dates and times. Plus, another way for you to contact us with your stories or questions. This has been a Millennium Beat LLC production, copyright 2020. Views and opinions of the guests are not always the views and opinions of the Millennium Beat LLC. You've been listening to the Millennium Beat with your host, Kevin James. I'm going to give you a little snippet of a show called Family Matters with your host, Paul Kendall. If you want to hear more shows like that, go to KendallFamilyNetwork.com. Once again, I'd like to thank Paul Kendall for the use of his show. 
Welcome to Family Matters, a daily look inside the real world of parents and their children. I'm your host, Paul Kendall. Peer pressure is an incredible force in the life of a young girl. The media emphasizes size and appearance far above moral character and Christian values. Many parents see the gradual effects in their daughter's dress and behavior. Being the huge music fan that I am, I wanted Renee to become a singer. So I would hold up a Whitney Houston album in front of her. Well, it worked. She fell in love with pop music. The problem came when many of our favorite, sweet, wholesome female pop singers discovered that sensuality would increase record sales. I'll never forget, a few years later, Renee trying to convince me that the girls in her favorite pop female group were Christians. She said, Daddy, they always thank God when they win a Grammy. One member's dad is a pastor, and her mother makes their costumes. And I said, well, her daddy must be a broke preacher because they obviously can't afford enough material to make the whole outfit. Now, Renee was still a very good girl, but I did start to detect subtle changes, and I had no doubt where it was coming from. We had many long talks, and even though she was willing to give up the music that she was listening to, I could tell that it was breaking her heart. What in the world have I done, I thought, and how in the world can I prevent this fast-moving train from derailing? Remembering that James 1.5 says, If anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all. I begin to ask God for wisdom concerning Renee. Then I begin to investigate Christian music groups that appeal to girls her age, and I told my wife, Take her to the Christian bookstore, let her buy any Christian CD or video that she wants. Well, that worked too. One by one. Renee began to discard secular CDs and spent more time listening to cool, young Christian artists who sang like she wanted to. If you sense that your daughter is gradually slipping away, ask God to give you wisdom and pray that she'll choose good things on her own. Oh, and by the way, Renee knows who her real mother is, and now she's headed off to college for a major in communications and a minor in Christian music. That's Family Matters. I'm Paul Kendall.